Good morning and happy Easter. We are happy that you chose to spend at least a part of your morning with us and with the rest of this community as we join together to remember and also to celebrate what we believe to be the pivotal moment in human history, the moment when everything changes, when everything is opened up to the possibility of something new. You know, one of the joys of following the church calendar is repetition. These seasons, these routines and rhythms that it forces us into, rhythms like the season of Lent, which we have just ended. Um, and while that is a joy, it can also be, and this is just a moment of honesty from a pastor, it can also be a little bit challenging for those who are a part of planning a worship service. And I think the challenge involved in some of these repetitive seasons that we go through is the redundancy and the desire to avoid monotony and all of those things. And when you're in these seasons and these routines and rhythms, it's really difficult to avoid redundancy. I heard a pastor liken it to playing slow pitch softball, which we are going to begin doing tomorrow. So that's another announcement. If you're interested in swinging the bat a little bit, we have some spots on the roster available. Um, but, but it's kind of plan, planning services for some of these big holidays is kind of like playing slow pitch softball in that, you know, you have a pretty large bat and there's a very large ball that is pitched underhand at a very slow speed it should be really easy to make great contact with every pitch and hit everyone out of the park. And yet, typically, I end up with a dribbler down the middle to the pitcher and I'm thrown out at first base. And that's kind of how I feel when it comes to some of these big holy days that we celebrate as the church. But something that I've been reminded of over the past couple of months as I've been looking forward to this day of celebration is that while we can examine and reflect upon various features of the resurrection accounts that we find in the Gospels, we can't put a new twist on the story. We can't reinvent the wheel, and that's not our goal. We don't want to reinvent the wheel. So rather, we simply return to this story. We let it wash over us and pray that the Holy Spirit would again enliven our hearts to the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A story that is clouded in mystery and misunderstanding and oftentimes disbelief. One that has been retold at least every year for nearly 2,000 years. It has been communicated orally and written about in countless books and even portrayed in film the current medium of choice. You know, the many religious traditions that find their identity in the life and work of Jesus certainly do not agree on all or even most issues of theological reflection and even practical living. But when it comes to this portion of the story, this portion of the story of God's people and God's self-disclosure to those people, those various streams of Christian faith gather once again and find incredible consistency. The event we celebrate this morning is the foundation for Christian belief and practice. And so today we begin by simply reading the gospel text for today from Mark chapter 16, where he tells us about the events 
of that fateful Sunday morning we commemorate today. Mark 16, we'll begin reading in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Such a surprising, hope-filled, and exciting part of the story immediately after the most shockingly sober turn of events where we find Christ hanging on a cross just a few days before his body battered and bruised, barely clinging on to life and crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? This is the reality that we have been plunged into over the past several weeks during the season of Lent. This would-be Messiah arrived and he showed such great signs of promise and people really thought he was going to lead the people of Israel to freedom, performed many miraculous works and had incredible insight, but then we killed him. Surely if the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob was actually with this would-be Messiah, surely it wouldn't have ended in his death. And yet it didn't end. Because the story continues in Mark's gospel, we find a few women who had been close to Jesus during his ministry, spices in hand on Sunday morning as the sun is just peeking over the horizon, and they approach the tomb, prepared to anoint the dead, lifeless body of Jesus. Apparently, these women know that Jesus had been killed. They have no hope or expectation for what they are about to discover because they understand a simple fact of life, and that is when you die, you die. That's kind of the end of the story. And so these women are prepared to anoint the body of Jesus. They make their way to the tomb. The only thing they're concerned with is that they won't be able to remove the stone once they arrive. But when they arrive, they discover that the stone, the one thing left obstructing their access to Jesus, had already been rolled away. And in the tomb, 
where they expected to find the shattered body of Jesus, they found instead an angelic being making a wild pronouncement, saying to these women, you saw that Jesus was crucified. You saw him breathe his last breath. But death did not conquer him. What more can we add to the story? Nothing really, and so we simply reflect once again. In her song entitled Evergreen, singer-songwriter Audrey Assad writes this, God on a cross, who would have thought it? This place looks nothing like Eden, but there is no death here in the ruins. This is the land of the breathing. This is the land of the breathing. This is the Easter message, the land of the breathing among the ruins. And I think this message of Easter is so important for us to keep in our minds and our hearts, especially after we've spent some time over the past month or so looking at that opening section in the book of James, where James reminds us not to be surprised when we face trials of various kinds. And then takes it a step further and says, not only expect those trials, but learn to find joy in the middle of those seasons of difficulty. But resurrection tempers that a little bit and reminds us that while trials and tribulations and ultimately for all of us, while failure and death are inescapable facts of life, they do not have the final say. You will have to endure Friday in a metaphorical sense. You will suffer the pain that is so often associated with a broken world, with broken relationships. You'll probably suffer the physical pain and exhaustion that is a byproduct of our broken bodies. And you may at some point endure that dark night of the soul, which comes with an overwhelming sense of spiritual abandonment just as Jesus experienced, crying out, why have you forsaken me? There are going to be seasons when you feel like an emotional wreck. Maybe as you try to work through difficult situations from your past or you're navigating serious doubts that you have about the faith or mistakes you've made are haunting you. Your accuser, your adversary, the enemies of your soul will continue to tempt you and try to convince you that that old life defines you and that your state of death is your present reality. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes that all. And so we routinely enter this story again and allow it to remind us that those are all lies. We see this clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. This is a text we looked at a little bit last week, where Paul is talking about our fallenness, our human condition apart from Christ, and then he contrasts that with our state as we have been united with Christ. And in verse 4, he says this, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul says you were dead, but just as Christ was dead and made alive, we have been made alive together with Christ. We have been raised up, Paul says. That language elicits thoughts of Easter Sunday. And of course, as followers of Jesus, we have a task and we have a role to play in all of this, but Christ has already won the victory over sin, death, and the grave. Victory has been achieved because of the faithfulness of Christ, and we believe that in his life, in his resurrection, we find the promise that resurrection life is the final word for us as well. In the victory of the resurrected Christ, we find the hope that our past failures, our present fears, our ailments, whether those are physical or spiritual, don't have to define us, and they are not the end of our story. For you, for me, today, because of the resurrection, whatever the present looks like for us, however difficult or painful or terrifying it may be, it is not the final word. You'll still have to go through Friday. In fact, the death and failure that Friday represents is necessary because Christ lived and died that we may now die and in so doing find life. Poet that Austin turned me on to, named Christian Wyman, said this Every man has a man within him who must die. Every man has a man within him who must die. We cannot be raised up with Christ. We cannot be raised up to new life without first going through the doors of death and failure, where that old person is killed within us where we die to who we once were. In one of today's readings from the New Testament, Romans chapter 6, Paul says this in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So right on the heels of Paul's discussion about the nature of the gospel of grace from Romans chapter 5, where he has argued that In Jesus Christ, we have an eternal life that overcomes sin because as sin increased, Paul says, grace abounded all the more. But as he continues developing this thought in Romans chapter 6, he also wants to stress that that abounding grace he talks about previously is not a licensure to throw caution to the wind. It's not an excuse to pursue our own desires or our own definition of the good life. 
But in receiving the life of Christ, we by necessity, as we symbolize in the sacrament of baptism, we die to our old selves, that we might walk in newness of life. So the Christian faith is apparently not a matter of just approaching Christ like a predator in search of a meal where we're on the hunt and we go in for the attack and we get our fill and then move on to the next thing we're in search of. We get what we want from Jesus and so we have no use for him in our lives anymore. He doesn't receive much say. It's kind of like what Dallas Willard refers to as vampire Christians, which I know sounds really strange to bring this up on Resurrection Sunday. And I'm not at all into vampire folklore, to be quite honest with you, although I did read Stoker's novel Dracula a few years ago, and quite surprisingly, I did enjoy it, which is unrelated to where we're going, but felt it necessary to say, I guess. But Willard refers to vampire Christians, Vampire Christians, those who would reduce the Christian faith maybe to a statement like this. Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. And I think this, in a nutshell, is the message of the book of James that we've been going through. Sort of this pushback against the idea that, well, I'm all on board with having faith if that is going to ultimately save me, but don't impose on me some radical idea like a living faith. Don't require me to do something hard. But if we understand the resurrection, this theology that Paul is developing surrounding the resurrection, part of receiving the eternal life of Christ is now walking in that newness. The Apostle Paul goes on to say this in Romans chapter 6, where we left off in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We walk in newness of life. And so what does the resurrection mean for us today? It is the centerpiece of our theology, and it is a cause for great rejoicing, but why? Well, I think on one hand, it is a cause for celebration and rejoicing because we do find God's power and glory on full demonstration but we are also reminded by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ is the firstfruits. In his death and resurrection, he is the picture of what is happening and what will ultimately happen for us all. And so we celebrate today. 
Because in the resurrection of Jesus, we find that God has reversed the trajectory of human history as death has been defeated. And in its place, life, real life, is made possible. In the resurrection, a time has come and a kingdom has been inaugurated that reverses the trends of the curse of sin. Obviously, we have to understand the fact that the kingdom is here, but not yet fully present. I mean, a cursory look at our world reveals that fact, but in the resurrection, that new world has already begun and we can take part in it. And that is a cause for rejoicing. Christ is alive. The kingdom of God is here and we can enter it. And how do we enter it? We begin by simply living in the realities of God's rule. Living in the realities of God's rule. It goes back to the thrust of the message of the book of James. We are not only hearers of the word, but we are doers of the word as well. We have a faith that is alive and changes how we live and ushers us into God's rule. What does that look like? Like practically, well, we embrace the subversive nature of the gospel. We embrace the subversive nature of the kingdom whose king rode into the city of Jerusalem riding a donkey. We actively seek to live out the great reversals that Jesus demonstrated throughout his life. We participate in enemy love. We seek to give a voice to those society has trampled on. And when we embrace the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we give up that limited view of the Christian faith that reduces Jesus to what I can get out of him. And in its place, we seek a holistic understanding of the atonement and the work of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, which emphasizes discipleship, a way of life that we have been invited into. So today, as we reflect upon this story, the pivotal moment in our history, we are encouraged to participate in that resurrection life daily, to participate in the restoration of all of creation, to pursue peace in our relationships, to seek justice and wholeness. So we have not only the opportunity to enter the new life of Christ, but we have the re responsibility to walk in that newness this day and every day. And that is the end towards which we strive. Amen. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The old, the, behold, the new has come. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. And as we move towards a time of celebration in the Eucharist this morning, I want each of you to be encouraged as we reflect upon the resurrection that in this event we find the promise, you find the promise, that your failure, your pain, 
what today feels like death to you, it's not the final chapter. It is not the end of your story. It's not the final word. And even if physical death conquers you before you find resolution to the heartache you endure today, you still win. Because even physical death does not triumph. Kevin, if you want to come up. As the 20th century Scottish Protestant theologian Thomas F. Torrance said, the resurrection is God's great act of amen to the cross. God's great act of amen to the cross. And we proclaim together this morning, amen. Let it be so. Jesus Christ conquered death, and in him we have the resurrected life. Would you stand? We are going to move to a time of celebration this morning. As we approach the table... And we invite you to encounter the risen Christ today. We invite all of you, you do not have to be a member of this congregation or any particular church to respond to Christ's invitation to himself. Jesus Christ, who was crucified, who endured great pain and death because of our sin, but Jesus Christ, who conquered the grave, he invites you He invites you to encounter him this morning. He is offering you participation in his resurrected life. So as we eat the bread this morning and as we drink from the cup, which represent his body and his blood, we rejoice in the life we have received today. Amen. By way of invitation to the table. I invite you to join me in this prayer. I'll lead the first part, and then you can join me near the end. Almighty God, who for our redemption gave your only begotten Son to the death of the cross, and by his glorious resurrection delivered us from the power of our enemy, grant us so to die daily to sin that we may evermore live with him in the joy of his resurrection Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing life. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning?